the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Wednesday show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And as you just heard the announcer say, this is the Word to Stand Up for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, life questions, church questions, anything and everything. All we need you to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. And you will be connected directly to our studio producer. We got a lot going on tonight. I'm going to be teaching one of the most remarkable chapters in the entire Bible. Uh, we Daniel chapter 4 is the personal testimony of perhaps the most vicious king who's ever lived on the face of the earth. A man with no redeeming value. A man that was drunk with power. A man who was so evil, so harsh that, well, he did horrible things. And yet tonight we're going to hear how he came to faith in Jesus Christ. That's a neat thing. So we're going to see King Nebuchadnezzar in heaven, and tonight is his testimony. And of course, tomorrow is Thursday, which means it's the date day edition of the program. And uh, Paula will be live in the studio with me. And I'm just trying to shake my head a little bit because I can't believe it's already September 1st. But we made it to September. So while we wait your phone calls, we will take some of these questions that have been sent in. The first one comes from Raymond. He says, how could people who live before Jesus be judged since they didn't know right or wrong? Raymond, everybody knows right from wrong. Everybody, everybody knows right from wrong. Those who live before the law, Romans chapter 1 says that we've been given a conscience. A conscience, sort of that governor that instinctive governor that tells us we're doing something that we should be doing or something we shouldn't be doing, and how we respond to that conscience, conscience being a gift given by God, how we respond to that conscience uh, determines uh, how we'll be judged. Uh, People who have the law, they live before Jesus, they had the law. The law was very specific about what to do and what not to do. And there's been a form of law in every civilized Uh, civilization um, throughout the history of the world. So we are judged then and now based on what we did with what we know. And the people who lived before Jesus uh, knew right and wrong the same way, Raymond, you and I know right and wrong. So somebody goes to heaven, it's because they believed. Abraham was believed God and it was credited to or accounted to accounted to him as righteousness. 
And uh, that's the same way people have always been saved. We who are on this side of the cross, we have it easier because we look back at historical fact. Those who lived on the other side of the cross looked forward to the cross. They looked forward to redemption, but they did that because they believed God's word. So everybody gets judged, Raymond. We're all accountable before God. No one will be without excuse. Let's go to our first caller. we got Thomas on line one from San Antonio. Thomas, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Hello, Mr. Arbaugh. How are you doing, my friend? Um, I'm, I'm well. I had this question. Huh? I'm well. Thank you. Oh, good. Um, you know, I, I don't want this to be a silly question. I really don't. Um, I know better, but I just wanted to get your, I do. It's just that, what do you, I'm going to spit it out here. What do you, what do you think about the CBD products that they have out there? They, they, I know they're drugs and I know for us Christians, we don't touch them. We're not supposed to, but you know, can I get you to expound on that and to, and to speak about that, please? Yeah, I can, Thomas, a little bit. I'm certainly not a CBD guy or um, a drug guy. Um, uh, by, uh, of anything, but but here's the thing, you know, we we and I get this question in different forms from Christians all the time, uh, whether it's about marijuana or or anything else, and the answer is always this: we who are believers, rather than seeing what we can get away with and still be saved, we ought instead, Thomas, to see how close we can get to Jesus. And none of the things that are out there, whether it's alcohol, drugs, um, um, again, the fact that it's legal makes no difference. What we want to do is make sure that our walk with Jesus is, um, we're able to, to, to be with him without any interference. We certainly don't want any self-inflicted obstacles to enjoying our walk with Jesus. So uh, I'm not familiar with bars. I, I never went to, to bars, whether they were alcohol or otherwise. Um, I've not participated in CBD. I can just say that, that the people that have asked me about it in church, Thomas, it's just not something that we who are believers ought to do. We're to be sober, to be vigilant. Peter says the enemy is prowling around like a roaring lion, and he's going to use every opportunity that he has. And the Christian that says, well, it's legal, so I can do it, or or what's the difference between smoking pot or drinking beer? Um, um, I, I think what we've got to do is we've got to just understand that, that our lives are supposed to be committed and submitted to him. And we're not to do things that people are in the world. I'm sorry I can't be more specific about CBD bars. I don't really know what goes on in those places. And I'm certainly not approved, Thomas. It's just that um, I, I try... I'm sure I'm not always successful, but I try not to go anywhere where I don't feel like Jesus would be comfortable being there with me. So, Thomas, that's the best I can do with a question like that. Thanks for the opportunity. Here is an anonymous question. It says, Jesus said not to worry. Does that make being depressed or worried a sin? Um, no, it doesn't make it being a sin. I, I don't think it's an active sin, worry, fear, depression, discouragement. Those are natural responses, typically emotionally, to things that are going on in our lives. What Jesus is telling us not to do is not to be bound by fear or worry. If we're anxious for things, Jesus said be anxious for nothing. Uh, if we're if we're depending on him for anything and everything, then then we're not going to, to be worried. And when we have those moments when we all worry, and anonymous, we all do, when we have those moments where we think, well, what about this or what about that? I don't know what's going to happen with, with this situation or that situation. Those are the times we have to take those thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. I just think the problem is that too many of us, like people who don't know Jesus, people who have no hope, I think we get bound by worry. We we chew on it instead of just spitting it out. We chew on it. And uh, I think it gives the, the enemy an opportunity uh, to wreak havoc in our walk. Uh, is it a sin? You know, um, Paul says, in your anger, do not sin. Uh, so anger in and of itself is not a sin. Depression in and of itself is not a sin. Worry in and of itself is not a sin. 
But when we allow unbelief to overwhelm us in that worry, then we border on sin and unbelief. And and like the Israelites who perished in the wilderness because of unbelief, there's a whole bunch of Christians who are perishing in this world because they're overwhelmed with sin, with with worry, with fear, with whatever the emotional state that that uh, applies to you um, works. So no, it's not a sin, but how you respond to it can easily turn into sin. I hope that makes sense to you. I one time did a Bible study on uh, Jesus when he said, "Do not worry." And I mean, we talked about it from, uh, it was it was one of those one-verse Bible studies. And I went through all of the different verses in the Bible that talked about do not worry. Jesus said this, we can trust him. We have faith in him. And this lady, when it was all done, she said, that was a really great Bible study, Pastor Ron. And I said, oh, well, thank you. She said, but I don't care what you say, we're still going to worry. And when I told her, she said, yeah, but you don't have to. If you do, it's a choice you make, but you don't have to. Here is a semi-related question anonymously. Is there a way to fight being depressed and angry? Um, Yeah, anonymous, two things. Just be with Jesus. You can't be depressed in his presence is the fullness of joy. That doesn't mean you're happy about everything that goes on. It just means that you're in a place, mind and heart, or you can fight the depression. Uh, angry. How can you be angry when Jesus is around who forgave you of sin? I think, Anonymous, you're in a good place because you're recognizing the feelings of depression and anger. So now what you've got to do is ask Jesus to help you recognize them earlier and take control of those things. Remember, self-control is the fruit of the Spirit. So you just be with Jesus and 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 then walk in the spirit rather than in the flesh. Now, to me, this makes a lot of sense, and I don't know if it'll make sense to, to you in the audience or not, but um, in Galatians 5, we have two lists, a list of the bad fruit of the flesh and a list of good fruit of the spirit. And all we have to do is identify where we are at that particular moment and then respond accordingly. If you're getting angry, then you can say, wait a minute, that's a bad fruit of the flesh. I don't want to do that. Jesus, I give my anger to you. And you can do it right away. If you just kind of let it settle, then you're going to get angry and angry. And I think the same thing is true, Anonymous, with depression or discouragement or just feeling melancholy. I, I just think there's those things that we got to recognize right away. And we've got to be prepared to fight. You know, too often we Christians, we don't sign up for the spiritual warfare part, the fighting part. And the truth is we're in a fight every single day with the one who wants to to, to destroy us. So what we've got to do literally is say, Jesus, you have to fight this for me. And he always will. He always will. If you're ready to say, no, I don't want to get angry, that's a sin. I don't want to be depressed because I want to be full of the joy of the Lord. If we'll do those things, then people will respond. And all we have to do is just let the Spirit of God take over. He will empower us. And that's the only way to fight. Meds aren't the way to fight depression. Jesus is the way to fight depression. If you're angry, giving in to it is not the way to fight. The way to fight is to say, Lord, I don't want to misrepresent you. And if we'll understand that and respond accordingly, then we'll find ourselves in his presence and there's no better place on earth to be anonymous. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. If you are outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Bob says, Will people who are left behind in the rapture who knew about Jesus but weren't born again, will they get another chance during the Great Tribulation or are they lost? Bob, everybody gets another chance in the Great Tribulation. That's one of the great things about the Great Tribulation. You know, I'm, I'm, I want to qualify. I'm sort of an adventurer. 
I mean, I, I look at the, 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 the uh, revival that's going to be going on in the world during the Great Tribulation. I see the miracles that are going to be done, especially by the 144,000 uh, evangelists. I see the just the sheer numbers of people who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, and it excites me. I mean, it excites me so much. I think, wow, it would almost be great to be there. Now, I said almost because I don't want to be here. I want to be with Jesus. But the reason it's so exciting is because everybody, whether they knew about Jesus but didn't surrender to him, weren't born again, or had never heard his name, in the Great Tribulation, the Spirit of God is going to be moving in ways that that we just haven't seen in this world. Uh, people are going to die. It's going to cost them everything to give their hearts to Jesus Christ. But God, who is eager to bring people to himself, he's going to accomplish that. And uh, Bob, when they're left behind, it's going to be hard. But yes, they're going to get a second chance and more. Uh, all they got to do is look around and say, you know, it was true. What that crazy pastor was saying was true. I need to get right with God. And uh, and and many, 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 many will do it. So they will have a second chance. Bob, just sort of an FYI, I'm going to be teaching this Friday night on the rapture of the church. And so if you are interested, you can either join us in person or online at calvaryessay.com. And we're going to be teaching about the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, why it's got to be a pre-trib rapture, and uh, what we can look forward to once we get there. So I'm excited. We're in Revelation chapter 4. Thank you for the question, Bob. Wallace says, If I want my kids in adult services with me, would that be possible at your church? Um, Bob, it'd be possible, sure. I, I don't think it's the best place for kids. Now, you don't tell me how old your kids are. Uh, but um, um, the, the best thing for a child is to be taught at his or her own level. And we got wonderfully gifted teachers. Now, they teach the same way I do, uh, verse by verse. We don't have programs or stories, but, but we, we teach through the Bible, and we do that from the very earliest ages. And when we do that, we teach it at their level because we want them to grow, and it really, really works. Now, if you want your kids in adult services, and if they can behave, if they can pay attention, then they're welcome to stay. Uh, but we don't want to allow distractions to take away from the word being taught. It was an interesting dynamic. We got a, a room full. We have three services on Sunday. Um, when we've got a room full of people who've come to hear the word and the word is what they need to hear, the spirit is moving, uh, we certainly don't want them worrying about fidgety or fussy kids sitting next uh, to, to them or, or, or causing them uh, um, being unable to to pay attention. Um, uh, you know, somebody said, well, you just don't want your sermons interrupted, and I was accused of that before. That's not it at all. My sermons get interrupted all the time. It's not that. I just want the Word of God to be able to go out and to be understood. Um, if your children can sit and behave, and if you can still listen and pay attention, then no problem. But if the kids are causing a distraction, our ushers are going to come up and ask you to take them outside. It's that simple. For the life of me, I, I've never understood uh, why Christians uh, would not want their children in a service with other kids where they can learn to socialize with other kids uh, and where they can be taught the Word in a way that's understandable and interesting to them. Wallace, i got to tell you, I think listening to me would be the, a, a fate worse than death for an 8-year-old or a 10-year-old. Who is that boring old guy when there's somebody in another part of the building who has the ability to communicate to them, keep their interest and and uh, and teach them the word. The other thing that's always been a little bit frustrating for me is that uh, so many Christian parents um, rebel against a pretty straightforward rule. We prefer you take your children to children's church. I mean, why is that a terrible thing? And the truth of the matter is... Um, 
there, there simply isn't a reasonable excuse for wanting your children to be. I've had, I've had parents say, well, this is family time together. Um, no, it's not. This is church. This is where we get, we're, we're supposed to be equipped to do the work of ministry. Um, family time together is the time you sacrifice to be with your family that takes you away from other things that you want to do. So, Wallace, you, if your kids can pay attention, no problem. But if not, um, then maybe a better, a different church is best for you. Hope that makes sense. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Jacob. Why do Christians suffer so much? Jacob, because we live in a fallen world and suffering is part and parcel of what we're called to do. Uh, I, I, I infer from the question that that you sort of lean to that side that says, well, if you're a Christian, you shouldn't suffer. God should protect you or keep you from suffering. We have to remember, Jacob, that this is a, a father in heaven who didn't even intervene to keep his own son from suffering. We've been given the opportunity to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. And we're never more like him than when we're enduring suffering or persecution. And we're doing it joyfully, not not happily. Again, that sounds naive, but, but when we do it joyfully, we do it because uh, he did it first for us. So it's unreasonable, Jacob, to expect that Christians won't suffer. The Bible talks about the sun setting on the just and the unjust. Good things happen to good people and bad people. And by good people, I mean comparative Christians. Um, so that's just the, the reality. Um, suffering is a part of life in this fallen world. A time is coming where we will never suffer again, where there will be no more pain and no more sorrow and no more tears. Uh, that time is not now. And Jesus was our chief sufferer. The Apostle Paul was shown the many things he must suffer for his service to God. And by the way, he was shown that before he said yes to any of that service, to his calling. So he knew what it was going to cost him in terms of pain. And he did it anyway. We also ought to understand that suffering is just part of being a human, let alone being a Christian. Let's take a phone call real quickly before the break. We've got Victor on line one. Victor, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Good afternoon, Pastor Ron. Thanks for answering my call. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have a question on uh, if you could recommend some passages of scripture uh, in explaining uh, to uh, one of the most common uh, questions that I get from people uh, is that uh, they don't believe in God because uh, God is allowing all this crime and evil and all that. And I'm, I'm, I, you know, I just explained to them that we're, you know, we're in a fallen world since Adam and Eve fell and the devil's in charge. Uh, uh, and and uh, he's got free reign, and, uh, and most of, for the most part, although he still has to get permission. But I'm, I'm wondering what passage of scripture would you recommend them to, to, to understand that, that God is not—it's not God's fault. And uh, and you know, instead of blaming God for all that's going on. Yeah, Victor. Uh, two two things that I would do instantly. I would send them to Genesis chapter three and explain to them this is when it all began. Um, that was the fall of mankind. God created everything perfect. Mankind ruined it. So why would you blame God in, in the first place? Uh, it's also important to ask questions of people like this. Now, uh, this may take a moment to develop, uh, Victor, and I don't know how much longer we've got in this side of the break or before the break, but I will continue on the other side of the break if, uh, if I don't get it in. You know, one of the things that we've got to understand is that God gave us free will. And we're accountable for the choices that we make. And when we choose to rebel against God, that's that's a description against evil. Now, the the man or the woman who says to me, well, there's so much evil in the world and, and so much pain and so much sorrow. Why doesn't God stop it? He's going to do that. 
We have his promise he's going to do that. But if he was to do that today, the very people that were asking you that question, they would be the ones who would be done away with. They would be judged as evil. You know, their sin is responsible for all the pain and suffering in the world. Now, it's not that their sin causes others to suffer, but if God decided today that I'm going to just, I'm going to end all the suffering in the world, that means everybody who's separated from God by sin would be judged. Now, that's going to happen during the Great Tribulation. But now is not the time because God is still in the grace business. So, Victor, it's very important. Don't back down from these questions at all. Just say, have you had sex with somebody you're not married to? Well, if God eliminated the evil in this world, you would be eliminated. Did you get drunk last week, last month? If you got drunk, you would have to be eliminated because in God's eyes, that's evil. So, personalize it. And that's, that's always, for me, been the most effective way to deal with those questions. And one other thought, Victor, most of the time those questions are dishonest questions. If you would ask the person, well, if everything was perfect, God did away with all the evil today, would you believe in Jesus Christ? Well, I don't know. There's no proof. See, it's not an honest question. Great question from you, though, Victor. Thank you. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the Wednesday show, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. back to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of our wednesday show remember paula will be live in studio with me tomorrow she is the best part of the week here on the program and we'd love to hear from you uh, here is a question from kirby Kirby says, um, my question is on New Testament cross-references of the Old Testament. Do the New Testament writers need to cite its sources every time, and do they need to quote verbatim, or can the spirit of the letter do? For example, Matthew 27, 43 says, he trusts in God, let God rescue him now if he wants him, which of course is a quotation, this is me now, quotation from Psalm 22. Uh, why does it not cite Psalm 22, 8, which says, He trusts in the Lord, let the Lord rescue him. In comparison, John nineteen twenty four quotes Psalm twenty two eighteen, They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing, which is quoted verbatim. Uh, a lot of times when you'll see the Old Testament quoted by New Testament writers, Kirby, what you're seeing is they're quoting, in the time of Jesus, the most reliable manuscript of the um, Old Testament was the Greek Septuagint. About 189 BC is when that was was published, uh, and and it, it became a favorite of Jews. Greek, of course, the, the official language of the world at that time. And um, so they're quoting the Septuagint rather than the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, when you get to Psalm 22, then you're going to see that quoted from the Hebrew scriptures, the Hebrew manuscripts. So that explains the difference. And and there's no uh, contradiction or, or inconsistency at all. It's just, it's, it would be like uh, me saying, uh, I look at the Old Testament and I want to find a New Testament passage and I quote the NIV instead of the New King James. So that's all it is, but it's the same value uh, it's the same validation. Another thing to remember, especially with Psalm 22, is that Psalm 22 is prophetic. So uh, what we're seeing is that Psalm, the prophecy being fulfilled, and then the people who are in the crowd, in this case, didn't know they were being used to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures, but but if they would go back and look at Psalm 23, they'd say, wait a minute, I said he trusts in God, let God rescue him. But that's what Psalm 22 says. And they could have seen 
that that it was prophetic of Jesus and perhaps the Holy Spirit could trust him. So most of those minor um, but not inconsistent differences are simply a matter of text, uh, manuscripts that are being uh, quoted. Let's go to line one for Katrina in New Brunfels. Katrina, thanks for calling. You are on the air. Hi there. Um, I, I don't believe some of these questions are dishonest uh, about, you know, suffering and all. Uh, let's face it, the Mother Church is with the Catholic Roman Church of Rome, and they, I remember my Catholic education, they held up suffering as a quick way to get to heaven, a quick way to get, get out of purgatory. I mean, it was like a, a sacred thing. Uh, and I don't see the same thing in the Protestant churches, but I do see similarities because, um, you know, you know, it's a sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, we live in this kind of world where you just got to suffer and, uh, and you're, you know, and, and Pastor, I hate to say this, but that whole idea that we are these filthy garments next to God, that is so old school, and it is, it is disheartening, <laughs> and it makes you want to give up. You know what? It makes oh. you want to give up. Well, thank you. Thank you, Katrina. Please listen to my response. I, I, it doesn't make me want to give up. It makes me so grateful to God that he rescued me. And when you say it's old school, I'm, you're, I, I hope you're talking Old Testament, the inspired scriptures of God. But when somebody tells me that's old fashioned, that's old school, I tell them it's okay because God's old and God doesn't change. And the truth is, the best we can do, our righteousness is as filthy rags before the Lord. And the idea there, Katrina, is comparison. And it seems, sounds like maybe you're thinking about church's job is to make you feel better about yourself instead of, of, of realizing that, you know what, God, I can't do anything without you. And I am so grateful that there's an answer for my sin. I am so grateful, Katrina, that, that, that Jesus bore my sins. I'm grateful that he lives in me in the person of the Holy Spirit. And that's what it means to be born again. And so what can I say uh, when somebody looks around at this world and says, uh, it's hard to believe in God when I see so much suffering in the world. That is dishonest. It's dishonest. God didn't create the suffering. But Suffering is part and parcel. Suffering is part and parcel of the um, Christian experience. Paul talks about sharing in the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings. And I think, Katrina, people like you are looking for heaven on earth, and that's never going to be. And Katrina, here's one other thing. I know you're not listening any longer, at least on the on the phone, but... I would ask you to really examine your heart. Have you been born again? It doesn't matter whether you're Catholic upbringing, Protestant upbringing. Have you been born again? Have your sins been forgiven? Have you confessed to Jesus that you are a sinner separated from God because of those sins and you need to be forgiven? Truth is, we all want to be saved from hell, but not too many of us want to be saved from our sin. And that's why Jesus said the road... To heaven is a narrow one, and few find it, but the road to destruction is broad and well-traveled. So, Katrina, all I can say to you is your view of things is not biblical at all. And I hope you found Jesus. I hope you really, really find Jesus Christ. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is an anonymous question. Uh, I'm not married to the man I love because he's not yet divorced. Is it okay for us to live together until we get married? Uh, the answer is no, of course it's not okay. And you know it's not okay. You knew it was not okay when you wrote that question out. So, no, it's not okay to be in love with a man who's not yet divorced. You have no business being with somebody else's husband. Let me add it. add one more thing. If he's not a Christian and you claim you are, you have no business being with him. So no, it's not okay. Sex outside of marriage is a sin, willful sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and Galatians chapter 5 both say that people who live like you're contemplating living 
will not inherit the kingdom of God. So you've got a choice to make, Anonymous. Are you going to choose this man or the man Jesus? You know, the last caller accused me of being so old school. Um, I know what I am saying sounds so old-fashioned to the people in this world. But you see, Jesus makes the rules. You don't. I don't. So, no, it's not okay to live together. It's not okay to marry him it's, or to, 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 to love, be in love with him. It's not okay to have sex with him. It's simply not okay if you call yourself a Christian. Now, if you're not a Christian, do what you want to do. But if you think you're a Christian, it's not okay to live together. It's not okay to have sex. It's not okay for you to be involved with another woman's husband. Period. End of statement. So, not much to add to that. Lisa says, uh, Pastor Ron, what are your thoughts about Bible study fellowship? Uh, Lisa, I'm in favor of anybody who wants to study the Bible. Um, uh, I'm, I'm not a fan necessarily of their format. However, I would never be critical of it because people are getting together and studying the Bible. And Bible Study Fellowship has a lot of people from denominational churches that don't teach the Bible. And, and because of that, they, they perform a very viable service. Being in Bible study is always a good thing. So um, if, if you are contemplating doing that and your church isn't fulfilling your need for Bible study, by all means, go to Bible Study Fellowship and be blessed the Word of God is fascinating. It is, it is an amazing door that opens the, the, the door to freedom. And um, so go for it. Go for it, Lisa. I have no problems at all with Bible study fellowship. I do have some problems with churches that don't teach the Bible and make uh, things like Bible study fellowship necessary. Hope that makes sense to you. Thank you very much. Let's go to Jimmy on line one. Jimmy, thanks for calling. Good to hear from you. You are on the air. Oh, thank you. Hey, uh, is your retreat still on the 16th, 17th, and 18th? Yes, sir. Where at? It's at Camp Buckner. Oh, in that's Mar- the one we went through before. Yeah, in Burnett. Yes. So um, I already put in for my vacation. So how much does it cost? Okay. Good. Uh, how much does it cost? I, I can't. I, Jimmy. Uh, oh, how much it cost? I think, Jimmy, I think it's about $150. But you'd ask somebody who knows stuff. I don't I don't run anything around here. So you can check online. It's online at calvaryessay.com. I don't get online too much. All right. Well, come to church so you can hug me and you can sign up while you're here as well. All right, sir. Thanks. Okay, Jimmy. God bless you. Hey, and that's something I can, I haven't talked about it yet at all, but since it's September, I guess I ought to start talking about it. Uh, September 16th through the 18th, uh, that's a Thursday through Saturday morning. Uh, we are going to have our men's retreat at Camp Buckner. We didn't have one last year because of COVID. And um, uh, the campsite is open again. It's a beautiful place up there. And our men's retreats are epic. I mean, we're serious. It's not all fishing and basketball and softball. We're there to study the Bible. We're there to meet with Jesus. And uh, uh, you will be blessed. So uh, you don't have to come to the church to come to the retreat. Uh, we keep it as inexpensive as we possibly can. But believe me, we're losing money on this all the time. Um, our speaker will be Gino Geraci from Calvary Chapel in South Denver. A good, good guy. And uh, you will be blessed. I'll, sh- I'll be sharing uh, also at the, at the retreat. So um, we would love to have you come. All you have to do is go online, calvarysa.com, or you can uh, call the church office or show up here and register as well. So uh, we're almost up to two weeks before. Uh, it's a blessing. It's a blessing. Thank you, Jimmy. Look forward to seeing you. Rally. I don't know if I got the name right or if it was a typo, but it says rally. Um, Being a Christian is really hard. Do you have 
suggestions that might help. Um, Rally, I, 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 I'm not trying to sound spiritual here, but I don't think it's all that hard being a Christian. I think being a Christian makes it life easier, certainly makes life more sensible. Uh, and I also think that not being a Christian is infinitely harder than being a Christian. Now, if what you mean is you're struggling with temptation and all of that, I understand that. I get it. But um, being a Christian just involves surrendering your heart to Jesus Christ. And the way you do that is to to, to offer your body as a living sacrifice. The reason, uh, the, the way you do that is to, to every day uh, spend time with the Lord, talk with Him, um, open your Bible, let the Lord speak to your heart. I think you're going to find that living in the Spirit is a whole bunch easier than living according to the flesh. So uh, forgive me, I'm not trying to be trite here. I just don't really see that being a Christian is all that difficult. I think being an unbeliever or not being a Christian is much, much, much worse. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here's a question from Fred. He says, "Will you comment on Texas's new abortion law?" Fred, I am thrilled that there that, that we live in a state, and and even more thrilled that no doubt now other states are going to follow suit, where murdering children is against the law. I'm absolutely thrilled. Um, I think this is the most serious challenge to Roe v. Wade. Uh, Roe v. Wade, by the way, does not, um, uh, if if Roe v. Wade is overturned, it doesn't overturn abortion. It simply gives the rights to the individual states to decide. And this ruling, or this non-ruling, actually, uh, by the Supreme Court, uh, gives states the right to decide now whether or not it is okay to kill children in their state. And we can talk about pro-choice. We can talk about women's freedom, my body, my choice. Well, my body, my choice, that doesn't seem to apply to those who would argue that it's a woman's body, it's her choice. doesn't seem to apply to vaccines now, does it? So my comment is I am all for anything that makes it difficult to murder children. And people won't like that characterization, but I don't care. Uh, abortion is murder. Every child, we are guaranteed in our nation the right to the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we are depriving the right to, to life um, for uh, uh, infants who, who have no say-so in the matter. We have killed 65 million babies since Roe v. Wade became law in 1973. How many of those babies would have been evangelists or preachers? How many of those babies would have been scientists? Maybe maybe one would have come up with a cure for cancer. How many of those babies would have invented things that would have made life so much richer here? How many of them would have been sports stars or actors or actresses? So anything that can save life, I am 100% for it and I am proud to be a Texan you know I wasn't born here I've been here for 26 years a little over 26 years and uh, uh, I am so proud to be in a state uh, where reason and love and sensibility and real freedom matters so I'm from California I'm not going back so, Fred, I'm thrilled with the Supreme Court's non-action, which um, put Texas law uh, in a place where it could not be challenged. So uh, we're going to see now, I think, a bunch of other states, probably at my, at my count I was looking today, uh, about 18 um, other states are poised to follow Texas's lead and, and in, in even basically copying the wording on the law because because Texas the way the Texas law is written it makes challenging uh this law in lower courts impossible so we we're not going to have this run to another court and a, and a, and a liberal federal, federal judge is going to overturn it uh babies are going to be safer in Texas and that ought to be 
a source of joy and a source of pride for all of us. That's not political. That's biblical. Oliver says, Psalms talks about hating our enemies and we're supposed to love our enemies. Is that a contradiction? No, Oliver, a couple of things. Remember, especially David. I love David. Uh, David's Psalms, you read them, there's, there's the Psalms, you know, I, I, I exaggerate a little bit when I say this, but David has those Psalms where it says, God, break the teeth out of their mouth, you know, those kind of things, where David wants to get even, when David wants vengeance. Um, and that's so human. I get that. But remember, David didn't have the Holy Spirit living in him. David didn't have the revelation of the New Testament. David, in the flesh, in time and space, knew nothing about Jesus dying on the cross for his sins or ours. Um, and so I think we have a higher standard, Oliver, to live to than did David or any of the Old Testament saints. So we're supposed to love our enemies because Jesus loved us when we were his enemy. Now, it's easy, it's very common, ordinary, to hate our enemies. But Jesus said, hey, shouldn't you follow my example? Love and forgive the way that I've loved you, the way I have forgiven you. And so that's not a contradiction. That is just a, a fuller picture of who God really is with New Testament revelation. So no contradiction at all. Uh, Oliver, the one thing you don't want to do is hate anybody. You've got to keep um, your counts clear. If you want God to use you, you've got to be somebody who is, I'm going to use this phrase that I used for four weeks in our 1 Corinthians 13 study, um, you've got to be an excellent lover. It's the most excellent way. If we're unwilling to love, then we're not willing to follow Jesus, to pick up our cross, an instrument of death, and follow him. So hope that helps. Thank you. Diana says, will people with mental deficiencies automatically go to heaven? Um, Diana, people who are born with limited capacity of any type, um, they certainly don't have the standard of, of entrance to heaven that we do, believing in Jesus Christ, making a, a rational, willful decision to follow Jesus, to, to ask for forgiveness for our sins. People, and this is just the justice of God, people uh, are only accountable for what they do with what they know. And the, the man or the woman who isn't capable of rational thought or, or understanding the concept of sin and redemption, um, then, then God is going to judge that person completely different. And um, I don't think it's an automatic ticket to heaven, but, but I think most of them are going to be in heaven because God is just and he loves them. God's not looking to judge people. God is looking to save people, to redeem people. And so, Diana, I think people who have a lesser standard of capacity uh, are going to be judged by a lesser standard. You remember in the book of Jonah, the, the, the little prophecy of Jonah, Jonah was all angry because uh, the Ninevites were going to be saved. And God said, look, why are you angry? I have 120,000 people in Nineveh who don't know their right hand from their left. And he was speaking of children in that particular context. But there's the same thing. The child doesn't have the same standard the adult does. So, again, God is only going to judge people based on what they do with what they know. They're not going to be judged on or against anything that they don't know or they're not sure of or information they can't process. Remember, God is love. God is fair. God is just. Uh, Adrian says, what will Jesus look like when he returns? Um, Adrian, you know, he's going to look like a lamb that had been slain. Um, we know that. I say often that Jesus will be the only handicapped person in heaven. Um, he will bear the scars of his beating. Uh, his hands and his feet will still carry those piercings of the nails. Uh, his side will still be scarred where the Roman spear was thus thrust through it. His visage, um, having been marred according to Isaiah, beyond being recognizable in human form, will still bear those hideous scars. And while I use the word hideous intentionally, they're also going to be glorious and magnificent. 
I think those scars will be an everlasting sign that, that declares the height and width and depth and breadth of God's love for us. And I think it's one of those things where um, we're going to be shocked when we see him, uh, but that shock will also be awe in the sense that um, the beauty of those scars will be clear to everyone. Adrian, good question. Um, AJ says, this will be our last question today. AJ says, uh, Jesus said we must obey his commands, yet we don't follow the Sabbath. Are we going to miss out on rewards? Uh, AJ, uh, um, Jesus also said the work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. Remember, Jesus changed the covenant. Jesus did away with the Old Testament covenant, with the commands and the covenants, the laws. Uh, the Sabbath was part of that. It was a law given to Israel that was not given to anybody else. So we're not going to miss out any rewards simply because we're following Jesus' example. Now, Jesus was also accused of disobeying the Sabbath, of desecrating it, actually. But Jesus started teaching the religious leaders of his day. The Sabbath, you think... Um, the man that man was made for the Sabbath. He said, no, the Sabbath was made for man. And so we're not going to miss out on any rewards at all, AJ. Uh, you just worship God with your own heart. The day you do it doesn't make any difference at all. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Paula will be live in studio with me tomorrow on the date day edition of the program tonight at Calvary Chapel San Antonio. The testimony of Nebuchadnezzar. And we're going to See Neb when we get to heaven. Hey, may the Lord bless you and keep you. I'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.